Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. We've already got people watching, so welcome, welcome, welcome. It's uh, great to see you here again, as I'm still on the road, so we've got a completely different place as to any time before that we're broadcasting from here in the UK. But we're full, joined by the full team. We've got John, Sam, Craig, and Diane. And uh, Diane, you're still in the UK, and uh, we'll come on to you in a minute, because uh, you you helped us out uh, earlier today with a with an event but uh, how are the australians doing today how are you doing craig yeah really good we survived the flooding down here we've had lots of rain but uh no everything's going well down here good stuff good stuff john how are you good doing everybody. Well, we've had lots of rain forecast and not hardly had a drop so we're the opposite of craig and uh, lots of our friends are on the road and stuck at the moment how are you doing sam I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, a busy week, but uh, I'm here. Good stuff. I'm all good. Good stuff. Well, Diane, um, you're obviously still in the UK, and you're going to be in the UK for a little bit longer yet. But uh, today we actually met up, which was nice. I know we sort of yes, that was ways. good. We parted ways after the convention, but we met up again properly today, and uh, we had a, a great time with a, a big group of home educators, didn't we? We did. We had a really good time. Went very well. It was good. And we discussed all sorts of wonderful things. And you did your good to bad to worse program. And I talked about some fossils and some other things. And it was a, it was a good time. It was a great time. And we're doing something as well tomorrow, aren't we? What are we doing tomorrow? Tomorrow we're going to Folkestone on a field trip. And I'm really looking forward to that. I've never been to Folkestone. And yeah, uh, hopefully we'll good. find some interesting things there. And some cabbages, maybe, because I actually asked you to, to deal with the topic that you're dealing with tonight because we're going to Folkestone tomorrow and because we know about cabbages. So if you want to find out how evidence for creation is found in cabbages, you'll just have to keep watching because that's what you're dealing with tonight, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It's good stuff. <laughs> well, tonight's uh, title is Down, Over, Down Under, Up Over, right? So we're looking at evidence from Down Under, of course, Australia, as well as some of the evidence that we found here in the UK. In fact, we've even got somebody from Down Over dealing with some of the Up Over evidence. That's Diane, right? So we'll have a good, we'll have a good time. We'll have a fun time. But um, John, what's the, what's the plan to start off with? Shall we go through some uh, ministry reports? I think we should do ministry reports. Perhaps start with Craig because he's got the most exciting updates. Absolutely. Oh, so. Okay. Well, yeah, I've got uh, one particular example that's pretty uh, interesting, I, I think, is uh, during the week we had a visitor to the museum, Caroline and her husband, Alan. I've got a picture of them here and I'll, I can share in a second, but she's of Chinese heritage. I'll get that... Um, that's up uh, on the screen now. Oh, sorry. You've got that up. Okay. Um, yeah, so she's of Chinese heritage, as you can perhaps uh, see there, and um, but the, she lives in, in Australia now. And as she was reading the display that we have on Chinese characters, uh, she was reminded of some stories her mother used to tell her uh, when she was a child. Her, her Buddhist Chinese mother would tell her stories 
um, of a global flood that occurred thousands of years ago that wiped out everything except one family on a boat. And um, she was particularly frightened when her mother would tell her that the next judgment that was coming or the next catastrophe that was coming at least would be one by fire. So um, she, she wasn't a Christian. She hadn't heard the Christian message at all at that stage. But there's an example of the flood stories coming down through uh, different cultures after the dispersion from Babel. Um, but the good news of it is really that Caroline's mother is now a Christian and in, in her words, a full-on Christian that prays all the time and seems to have prayer answered and and, and all. So yeah, quite an, an exciting story for us to, to hear and very encouraging. And Caroline also confirmed the accuracy of our display there, which was um, really good as well. It's great stuff. It's great stuff. It's great to see um, museum displays get high praise. So that's wonderful. Yeah, and just one other thing I guess I could share is that uh, last week we uh, shared how we've sort of stepped out and got this new flagellum, bacterial flagellum display from Canada. And uh, we, we had a great donation towards that and getting it over here because freight these days is not cheap. But we've had a great donation um, from some Tasmanian supporters to help us get it over here, which was really encouraging as well. Fantastic. Praise the Lord. And yes, we uh, really do rely on your support of uh, worldwide ministry, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in the States, whether it's here in the UK. We very much rely on your support and uh, not just, you know, donations, but also your volunteer help, um, your encouragement, your prayers. So uh, if you can help, if you can give, if you can support, please do um, please do get in touch with your respective local creation research office. There we are. Um, John, how about you? What have you been up to? Okay, if you want to put me on full screen, <clears throat> that'll work well there. And a good that. morning to everybody, including you fellow Australians who are up, because I know some of you get up just to watch Diane and Sam and and, uh, and Joe and, and Craig and even me. Uh, some good news for you. We've got a camp coming up in about three weeks. So if you're in Oz and you're in New South Wales, you might want to join us because Australia is such a big place. You can't just rush down to the, the coast to find a fossil camp like they can in England. Um, you know, Joe, when he was in Australia, was amazed that the road from Melbourne to uh, to Sydney was just one highway, basically, <laughs> and almost as long as England was. So anyway, when, you, when you're in Australia, if you're interested in more details, on what we're doing, the camp deals with waking up to woke. You know, all the issues, homosexuality, gender education, all of those things that are really an attack on God's word from the beginning right through to the end. So that's coming up shortly. Um, get in touch with our Aussie office at info.creationresearch.net if you're interested at all. Okay, now we've got a couple of things coming up. Um, let, me, let me give you some background. We have been promoting the newest expanded updated edition of tights mites and fossil fights yes that's joe up in the corner and uh, that's diane down in this corner not too much of a portrait of diane but you might recognize her thumbprint or something like that uh, you will enjoy that new book it's only available in australia at the moment it's updated it's upgraded it's expanded and it's a fabulous book um, 
at the same time, Joe is telling me he's still got copies of our Christmas novel uh, written mm -hmm. for kids. Yes, written in terms of um, the cartoons and all of that. And based on that interesting thought, I'm sure came from the Lord as I was driving home from Jurassic Ark one day and I thought, Christmas star. And then it occurred to me, why do we think only three wise men saw it? <clears throat> Not just questioning whether there's three or more, but what about the other people? Did they see it? What did they think of? And particularly it follows the story of a little boy who was fascinated by stars because in those days they used stars as a calendar to plant their crops. <clears throat> yes, even in Israel. So if you want a great story for kids at Christmas, remember you can get it in England, you can get it in Australia, and you can get it off our website. And please, if you are using our website to buy things, please tell us that it's actually working because we've had three weeks unknown to us. We didn't get any orders at all. And then we discovered there was a, a big glitch out there with PayPal and things like that. So uh, let us know that it's working. In fact, order a book for sure. That'll let us know that it's working or better still make a donation. We make a good profit on donations, praise the Lord, and it helps us deal with things. Okay, Joe, can you put my PowerPoint up for the uh, first part? Here, I just want to show people some of the things that are going on. Okay, so there we are. You can see we're doing uh, with what's happening down under. Yes, a play on the word app. It's amazing what we can do with English or whatever app used to be. Now, let's uh, get this going, Joe. So remind me, the amateur guy who needs to get this going. How do I get yeah. my PowerPoint going again? Right down to the bottom of your screen, John, and you'll see the yeah. little orange P for PowerPoint. Hover over that, and it'll bring yeah. up your slides. Click on your full screen slideshow and that just one? start clicking across. That show? <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Is that moved on, Joe? It hasn't moved on, no. You just might need to click okay. on the PowerPoint itself and then click left and right. Well, I've done that. Now we've messed up again. Give somebody else a chance, Joe. And Sam, tell just, me what uh, just, just I'm try, doing wrong. Just, just try, John, going, can you see any a bar across the bottom of the screen where you have, like, your time and the yeah, little yeah, icons? Yeah. You got that? Okay. Yeah. Go to the orange PowerPoint. Yeah, now that's the bit that's actually missing on mine. Give it to somebody else and Sam right. will have to sort me out again. For some oh, there reason. We are. No, no, it's, it's moved on, John. Oh, yeah. Okay, very yeah, good. On. Okay, now we've just posted out our creation research news. So for those of you who don't get it, I'd suggest you update because tonight has got a lot to do with Australia. And here's Craig Hawkins, one of our best evidences of creation, as well as degeneration, some people have reckoned, <laughs> recommend. Uh, and you'll see what very <laughs> I'll keep, hey, Craig. And I'll tell you what, we've got a new project book coming out for kids. Didn't know it take me on the ark. It's a rhyming puzzle book for four to seven-year-olds, and uh, it's at the artist at the moment. So it should be available here in Australia in a couple of weeks, we trust. You will love it. We've run several programs on this, and the kids have loved it, and we've loved it too. But tonight's program, and the reason we are mentioning these books, is because of this. Notice in the news that came out just yesterday, parenting, great books to teach children about. Uh, what do you think the item was that this book is actually about? Thank you, Earth. Because if you're a Christian, the Bible says, and everything give thanks to God, to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Earth. Well, the whole issue is climate change. Great books to teach children about climate change. 
trouble is the problem with climate change is it's putting man in charge when the Bible reminds us it's God who invented the weather. And look what went along right beside it. Flooding is uncommon in Victoria, where the biggest flood was in 1934. So why is it happening now? Why am I mentioning that? At the present day, they're blaming the huge floods that are really happening in Victoria. They're not as big as the one that was in 1934. Did you catch that? Even though people are blaming the current floods on, on climate change and things like that, in reality, it was a bigger flood back in 1934. So what you need to know is when you get kids these books like Thank You Earth, you're teaching them abject anti-Christian um, doctrine. Uh, can I encourage you? Have a look at our website, grab a hold of the books and keep watching for the rest of our program on <coughs> Down Under and up, and up Over. Okay, now let me get out of here again. Um, go down to there, see what we've got here. Windows key, John, click on your browser, come back to us. Yeah, that's fine. That's I'll get good. there. There we are. Good. Great stuff. All right. Well, uh, I think that just leaves me and Diane to catch everybody up on what we have been doing. As you know, since the uh, convention uh, ended, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the evidence from the convention in the up over part of the program tonight, um, we've sort of hit the road. We had a couple of days off just to try and uh, recover. And then they all came crashing back down as we realized there's a whole list of administration things that need to be sorted. So we've been sort of solidly on the road as well as trying to catch up with all the administration stuff and trying to plan ahead and all this kind of stuff. So it's uh, been a bit exhausting, quite frankly. So yes, we do need your support and we do need your volunteering because Diane, um, on Monday, uh, we're actually taking you from where we currently are down in London back up to Shropshire. What are we taking you up there for? Well, we're going to do some exciting things to do with the new museum. Absolutely. We've got yeah. uh, a great uh, um, new documentary program type thing on poisons that we'd like to try and film with Diane. Uh, we've already filmed a little bit of that already. We've got to organise and sort out the museum. We've got to try and get it set up and ready for the open day. And, of course, we want to get it open um, so you people can start coming and seeing it as soon as possible. But if you want to sneak peek both before and after the open day, then you couldn't do better than to come and volunteer with us. So if you're here in the UK, um, it would be great to see you come and help both prepare for the open day and get stuff opened up and sorted out and organized. And you get to do some real research as well. And you get to come and handle and explore real artifacts, which would be absolutely wonderful. Um, stuff that you just don't get to do uh, in most museums, but we rely on your help to be able to do this research and do this work. So it'd be great to have you come and help us. And of course, Diane will be there helping us with some of the cataloging and organizing and sorting and everything else as well. So we're very much looking forward forward to that and uh, we're even going to do some more sort of tours through the museum talking about evidence and stuff aren't we yes that will be good we've got some wonderful artifacts and fossils to show people it'll be pretty spectacular i think and i'm very much looking forward to doing it with you so um do uh, come along to that if you can and if you're in the area we have of course got our Folkestone Beach field trip coming up. 
some pretty exciting fossils from there, some great plant fossils, even fossil forms have been from there before, um, beautiful ammonites and all sorts of great stuff. So it's uh, well worth the trip. So there's the contact information if you want to book um, or you can contact us, Creation Research. It's happening tomorrow. So uh, you haven't got long to uh, book. Just bring the money with you and uh, email us at info at creationresearchuk.com and we'll let you know where you need to go. But uh, a reminder, if you're in the area, do come along to our Folkestone field trip tomorrow if you can. Well, uh, that's about us in terms of what we've been doing over the last little while. So why don't we dive into some of the evidence to begin with? Um, who do you think should go first, John? Shall we start up over or down under? Let's start up over. Start up over. Diane, why don't you uh, give us our first sort of um, uh, topic for this evening? In fact, it actually has something to do with the Folkestone field trip that's going there tomorrow because, of course, John took me there years back. John visited before me, and there were some pretty interesting things that we found on the cliffs there. So, Diane, over to you. Yes, indeed. We did find some interesting things, and... Uh, we found some cabbages. Well, I wasn't there, but uh, I am reliably informed uh, <laughs> that you found some cabbages. Now, a lot of people would sort of turn up their noses at cabbages, and a lot of people would wonder, well, why on earth should we talk about cabbages um, in, in a creation um, in a creation uh, program? Well, cabbages are very interesting because Richard Dawkins says that cabbages are a good example of evolution. And what he was meaning was, well, supposing you went to the green grocer or to the fresh food market and you bought these things. Now, there's a, a interesting vegetables there. There's some um, cabbages. There's some cauliflower, broccoli. Uh, the one in the bottom left-hand corner is not a turnip. That's actually a kohlrabi. And Brussels sprouts, I'm sure you're all familiar with. And... Uh, but the one at the bottom right-hand corner there is very, very trendy stuff. That's kale, considered to be one of those new superfoods. Now, you might have six vegetables there, but in fact, you've actually only got one species of plant. Would you believe, right? Brassica oleracea, one species of plant. So could there have been any evolution? Well, you only have one species. Nothing's changed whatsoever. It's um, even better than all being one kind. <laughs> you got one. So no evolution there at all. So how did we get all of this variety? Well, we do need to go back to the sort of plants that um, our colleagues found over in Folkestone and you can find growing around the UK in uh, wild places. This rather weedy, unappetizing-looking plant is actually cabbage and it grows in other places as well uh, it grows in Europe and other places as well and in fact the Romans found this so it's not new and at our Jurassic Ark site we have this lovely mural describing uh, the history of all these different types of cabbages and the variety of them showing that these are all one kind and they are also a brilliant example of selection but not evolution. So selection is a real process, but it's not evolution. So how did we get all of this variety? Well, it depends on whether 
the selection, the selecting agents who are local farmers in various places uh, all over the world have concentrated on various uh, interaction or variations rather on the stems and leaves or on the flowers. They are a flowering plant. We might not think of cabbages as having flowers, but they do. Uh, they're a typical flowering plant. So what if you concentrate on variations in the stems and leaves? Well, that's how you get all these uh, different variations of these things. So cabbages, what classical cabbages um, or savoy cabbages, which are a variation on that, are really the leafy head of the plant. And uh, over the years, farmers have selected out the ones that have the biggest, thickest, most leafy uh, head of the plant, and you end up with classical looking cabbages. If you don't uh, concentrate so much on making a big, thick, round head with lots of um, uh, leaves, but rather look at a more spread out sort of structure, you get kale but it's basically the same thing. It's cabbage leaves with that nice sort of crinkly edge, which is um, rather distinctive. If you concentrate on the, um, the stems where you've got a whole lot of uh, little buds rather than on the leafy head, that's how you get Brussels sprouts. So on one stem, you'll get a whole lot of little clusters of leaves. And kohlrabi is interesting. That's the stem of the plant, which is uh, expanded at the bottom. So that's not a root vegetable, that is actually the stem of the plant. So variations on leaves of stem, leaves and stems, and you can get some quite extreme um, variations if you just keep on selecting for um, stronger and stronger characteristics. Now, if you really get carried away with the uh, stems, you can get them to grow tall and strong and you end up with what's called Jersey cabbage or sometimes walking stick cabbage because you can literally grow these uh, and then uh, <clears throat> uh, cut them and, and dry them out and they're quite strong. They're strong enough to be walking sticks. So amazing variation in cabbages. Now, what about if you concentrate on the flowers? Well, literally cauliflower and broccoli are just variations on the, uh, on the developing flower buds and they're sort of extreme examples of um, the uh, developing flower buds. Very interesting. So um, again, selecting agent being local farmers have concentrated on one particular characteristic and just reinforced and reinforced it and reinforced it, but no evolution, still the same species. And if you don't like cabbages to eat, well, you might be able to enjoy them just to look at. These are not flowers. This is actually ornamental cabbage. Now, cabbages do have uh, other pigments besides green in them. They have um, uh, these uh, reddish colored uh, pigments. And you may have even seen the reddish colored broccoli or reddish colored uh, cauliflower in the, uh, in the markets just for a bit of variation but you can breed uh, ornamental cabbages which are partly pink and partly green and they're quite pretty and I've, I've even seen whole garden pools of these and they're, they're very pretty. So they, these are not flowers. So even if you don't like cabbages to eat, you can still enjoy them. But remember all of that variation, all one species, so definitely no evolution involved there and Professor Dawkins is right 
and the creator, uh, Professor Dawkins is wrong, the creator is right. This is real selection, but it's not evolution. Uh, if we can come back to us now, if uh, anyone else would like to make any comments or ask any questions. Uh, well, I think, Diane, if uh, I'm just going to stick up a PowerPoint very quickly because it was mm -hmm. actually cabbages was one of the topics that I used during um, my debate that I did with um, uh, a guy over on the Standing for Truth website oh, um, yes. channel. <laughs> and this is a, a graphic which I pulled together, which kind of shows to you almost the... Um, the degeneration, if you like, mm. of Brassica olacera, the 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 common, the wild, um, the wild uh, cabbage. So you can see up here, right? Look, if you start off, you start off with your your brassica plant. You go to your broccoli. So you're being selected for the heads, and you select for the bigger heads, and you end up with your calabrese. You select for the mutated albino heads, and you end up with your cauliflower, right? And again, you go your collard greens, which are sort of like your loose leaf cabbages. If Napoleon marches his armies through and chops all the heads off, uh, as they did, you end up with little tiny cabbages off the sides. And of course, as you pointed out, you can end up with the ornamental cabbage. And then if you breed it into a sort of a shorter um, leaf and thicker stem and into the marrow cabbage and the kale, and eventually in the kohlrabi where you've got the big bulbous uh, stem, which is what is used to be chopped up and made so you can kind of see the it's definitely a degeneration it's a going downhill but mm -hmm. not only as you said is it all one kind uh, not only is it all one kind it's also all one species right so you've got the you've got the the cabbage the cabbage kind the brassica kind there's some examples there um but they're all one species brassica olacera and yet you get this amount of diversity and i think that in itself talks about the incredible um genius of design here that god has in actually putting this quantity of potential into not only one kind but also the ability for one special type of that kind one species to go off and produce all this diversity so it is pretty it is pretty spectacular hmm. um yeah, i'll throw so in a comment here that hmm. i've i've come across because we put quite a bit of this you might remember diane when we were doing the video, uh, Darwin's evolution, a very unnatural selection. So yes. if you want to put up where they can get that, Sam, as a streaming, Darwin's evolution, a very unnatural selection. One of the things we came across, because uh, I remember seeing those wild cabbages uh, down in Folkestone and then tracing the history, you can follow wild cabbages into England. You're actually following the Roman conquest, right? <laughs> 46 yes. BC and and the next one as well. So it's interesting, the history of the world, the history of cabbages, uh, first first point is man takes them around the planet. So you don't just need what are called natural forces. Humans take a lot of plants to a lot of places and the climate there influences them. So the next major step, if you look at our mural at Jurassic Arc, we've got the history of the last 600 years, 700 years, and one of the biggest influences in cabbage type uh, and why we've ma majored on cabbages to produce so many varieties is the ice. Remember the little ice age, 1400s onwards, etc. If you try and grow corn or wheat, it doesn't do too well when the place is covered in ice. But mm. cabbages survive very well indeed because they're such thick, fleshy things. They seem to do much better in the cool and the cold than so many other varieties of plants are. 
and I've just come across an exciting new variation. I've currently got cabbages and broccoli growing in my garden, and I report here for the first time in world history, at least as far as I'm concerned in my backyard, I, my broccoli, I've taken the major heads off, and they were beautiful. All, all my plants that all came from the same seed packet, but yet what's happening now, I let some of the flower heads, just the tiny ones, they're not worth eating. I let them go to flower. And on one plant, we have beautiful white flowers. But on the other plant, we have beautiful yellow flowers, which as Diane and I were talking, yellow is the flower color of wild cabbages. So even the loss of color as we've developed the flowers goes along with what Joseph said, you actually have degeneration. The best broccoli looks like the stuff that's actually losing its color when it flowers. And some of you know from hard experience that if you pick broccoli or you buy it from the shop and then you put it in the fridge and forget about it, it will actually flower anyway. They're pretty tough little biters and you have to eat a pack of flowers. Well, that's all right. I teach my students when we go out on survival camps, you can eat the flowers. In fact, you can eat most flowers, orchid flowers, cabbage flowers, and then nutritionists. They just don't look like broccoli covered in cheese uh, anymore. So that's a little bit of addition and um, a key factor in the selection of cabbages and so many varieties. And we haven't even discussed Chinese cabbages, which I also grow um, as being variation, not only within a kind, but within a species. So it gives you an idea of, uh, of what the evolution is called evolution, which really isn't, is change due to degeneration, including degeneration of the climate. And it's important to remind people as well, as I reminded uh, Taylor when I debated him, I brought up a picture right, of um, Charles Darwin's book on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life. And right down the bottom in the small print, it said that Darwin was a member of the Linnaean Association. And what the importance of Linnaeus? Well, he is credited with introducing us to our modern classification system for animals, right? And it's important to realize that he borrowed this classification system directly out of scripture, because our modern classification system uses a binomial uh, form of classification, so two names, right? And we refer to them today as genus and species. And that word genus is taken directly out of Genesis, but in the Latin Bible because that's what Linnaeus read and so you find in the Latin Bible it says that God created animals according to their genus and in your English Bible that word genus is translated into kind so Linnaean recog Linnaeus recognized um, that things reproduced after their own kind and so when he invented his binomial uh, classification system he said well you've got a kind and then that kind can continue to uh, adapt and change not evolve but adapt and change into a special type of that kind that's where we get our word species from and uh, you've then got your binomial system that we still use today kind and species genus and species is taken directly out of genesis so uh, it fits what we see in god's world fits exactly with what we read in god's word and as we remind people many times at creation research there are many many theories ideas opinions that contradict every single part of scripture but the facts never actually do so um there we go 
All right. Well, why don't we have, we've had some uh, up over evidence. Why don't we have some down under evidence? Perhaps Craig would like to share the next segment and then we'll have a little bit of a break uh, while we ask some questions and we uh, come back to uh, John and myself with the next sort of down under up over pieces of evidence. By the way, John, I think it'd be great to do a uh, waking up to woke conference over here in the UK. So maybe that would be our Mm. next, uh, maybe instead of a fossil convention, by the way, One of the things that we're trying to do with creation research in the UK is have one year or some kind of a convention fossil trip like we did this year. And then the next year have a sort of a a conference, perhaps a three day teaching conference. And I'd love to deal with tough topics. Right. Uh, I'd love to deal with, uh, you know, waking up to woke. It'd be great to have some uh, have some great uh, teachings that actually help people. So, uh, Continue to support us, continue to pray for us. And if you think it's a good idea, let us know. Anyway, Craig, over to you. Let's uh, talk about some evidence down under. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Joe. Uh, The question we're really looking at from this presentation is, has Australian and Tasmanian flora and fauna evolved in isolation from other regions? Um, As most people would know, we have a very unique flora and fauna, uh, lots of creatures and plants that are very unique to our particular regions. And Tasmania has a high level of unique creatures, even for Australia. Um, we're, we're dominated by marsupials, and there's a red-necked wallaby from the east coast of Tasmania with the little joey in the pouch there. So they're pouched animals that carry the young in the pouch, different to the placental mammals and the egg layers as well which we've got here with the platypus and the echidna Um, but we've got this wide variety of marsupials and one of the best known is the tasmanian devil just better get to my slides i guess there we go there's some cute little babies uh, in a breeding program they're being bred now because they're in fact declining in their numbers which is something we'll get onto shortly uh, there are widely displayed in wildlife parks across tasmania they're about the size of a very large cat probably a bit heavier than a large domestic cat and they're the largest marsupial carnivore still in existence in the world they live in dens breed in dens and they're found in all sorts of forest types across Tasmania they mostly eat carrion so they're not great hunters they they do eat um, meat but not not from really hunting they even have have trouble hunting small animals but they love to eat something that's already dead and they'll even attack a a dying human in the bush if they get half a chance and think that they've got it over you Um, But I've got a bit of a video that will show them eating. Um, It's quite hilarious to watch, I think. They'll fight each other, and if one of them gets a bit of the meat and starts to run off with it, there will be this whole trail of devils chasing them. But, Joe, if we can get that up now, we can just uh, go for about a minute, something I recorded at a wildlife park a little while ago. But if we can get that up now, we can show everyone the devils feeding. Uh, 
Okay, thanks, Joe. Um, there's another little video there I've got of another ta a unique Tasmanian is the tiger quoll or the spotted tail quoll. There's four quolls that, that obviously marsupials again, the pouched animals. Um, and in Tasmania, the tiger quoll uh, has the best population of anywhere in, left in Australia and indeed the world. So if we can just, this is a very brief one, So, but you'll just get an idea of the animal we can get that one up and playing now. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So just to get back back up onto the slides. So the Tasmanian devil and the, the tiger quoll really are remnants of a fauna that were more widespread across Australia. And uh, the, the quolls are still found in Australia. The eastern quoll isn't. The eastern quoll uh, was known from mainland Australia up until about the 1980s. And uh, now it's not not thought to be still on the mainland but it is reasonably common in Tasmania there's a picture of a devil with some scratch marks on its back there from fighting for food um, most likely um, one in the wild I'm guessing John took that one um, but here's what's happening to the devil now there's this terrible disease you can see there it's horrible sorry to do that to you in Australia if you haven't had your breakfast yet but there's Tasmanian uh, devils with the facial tumour disease and this has actually only really come in the last 20 years or so since I've been in Tasmania. It wasn't really known before then. It's something that's impacting them seriously such that they've been listed now in Tasmania as endangered animals. There's still, um, you know, reasonable populations out there but there's a lot of concerns about their decline. Um, the, the quolls and other marsupials in Australia have also deteriorated over the years uh, by various diseases coming in. In fact, the quolls were known to have been impacted about 100 years ago in the early 1900s by a disease that seemed to decimate them. And also, again, in the 1950s, 
Um, the, the devils were known to have a disease in Tasmania of some sort. No one really knows what sort of disease it was, but they uh, went through a, a rapid decline, recovered, but now they've got this additional disease. There's a present-day Tasmanian devil skull, and here's a fossil one from the mainland, from South Australia. They're also known in Victoria, so definitely were known from the mainland. But here's the comparison between the two. We've got the large mainland one in front and the current-day Tasmanian one behind. So Tasmanian devils, without a doubt, have decreased in size. Is that evolution? Is that refining? Or is it, in fact, evidence that the world has declined, their food sources have declined, um, and they're degenerating? Oh, sorry, I've got to get off that one if we can. I forgot to delete that, Joe. Um, just keep clicking across. Just go to the next right. slide. Uh, yeah, it wasn't allowing me to do that. I'll just see if I can get past it. Um, uh, there we go. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so here's a, um, a megalodon tooth. Another uh, great white is another example of a, a creature in Tasmania that has declined. You can actually get megalodon teeth in some parts of Tasmania been known from Flinders Island, for example. And that clearly is, you can identify sharks by their teeth, it's clearly a great white shark. But in the background of our display there is a real great white shark jaw, um, same sort of tooth you can see, but that uh, tooth is a fraction of the size of the megalodon tooth. And I know the guy that found that great white shark jaw, that's a, that's a real jaw, uh, back in the day when you could still collect them you're not allowed to anymore he found it dead in nets off the coast and it was a three and a half meter shark if you measure out three and a half meters on the floor that's a big shark it was so big that he couldn't get it into his boat but he did cut it open and pulled its liver out and it's a liver alone weighed a hundred kilograms which is sort of one and a half times my entire weight just for its liver so the the, the jaw in the background was still a big shark, but compare it to the megalodon tooth um, that we know was a great white that once lived and maybe is still alive today. Who knows? There's a bit of a picture we've got of the megalodon at the museum, uh, a massive great white shark. And we know that sharks continue to grow the longer they live. Well, the question that we can ask as a creationist that an evolutionist uh, feels uncomfortable asking, well, if you've got a you know, 15 or 16 metre megalodon shark, how old was it? So was it a better world in the past where they had their better food, where they could live longer and grow bigger? So all of these things are example of change in the 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 devils have got smaller, they've got uh, sicker, as have the coals, but it's no help to evolution because this is evolution. It's saying things are getting better and more evolved, superior. So change isn't indeed 
what we see in nature that's like this from molecules. We never see molecules forming life and life then forming more complex organisms, but rather the Christian perspective, which is the complete opposite really in direction, where we've had a created um, perfection, we've had a, um, a God that's made a good world, a great God that's made a good world. Mankind has sinned and it's been downhill ever since. That's degeneration, that's devolution. And the evidence in Tasmania and indeed Australia is not one of special evolution in a remote climate that's deteriorated as well. It's gone drier and drier. It's well known that it's become drier. It's not evolving in that. It's actually devolving and we've just got the, the creatures left that have survived that period to this point. That the Bible is indeed accurate from the very beginning. God made everything good. It's been downhill ever since. There's no evidence that Tasmanian wildlife has evolved from anything. It's a devolving remnant from a fallen world. And uh, once widespread creatures, as we've just seen, are shrinking in their ranges, getting diseases and becoming rarer. So that's it for me, Joe. I'll get back on my screen. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Craig. Sounds good. Well, there we are. There's our first two uh, evidence pieces down under up over. Um, Sam, how are we looking in the chat box today? How are the chatsters doing over there? Well, the chatsters are, are doing we? well. Uh, uh, already questions and the like. Already had a few come in. Uh, we've had uh, Doki Doki coming in with uh, 99 US centaroos with uh, 100 underlined twice. Okay. Um, I 100 underlined mice at first, and I think that <laughs> I think I'd rather see that. Yeah. Uh, right, okay. In terms of questions, uh, this one comes in from Shogiwa. Why does broccoli taste good, but cauliflower tastes horrible? <laughs> Add cheese and they both taste good. <laughs> that's a fair yes. point i've got to got to admit that i i would have agreed when i was younger and of course uh, uh if you're younger than me you may still be afflicted with this problem i suspect that the taste of vegetables actually in your mind changes as you grow older because you can no longer taste some of the things that you tasted when you were a kid when you eat the food as a kid some tastes actually um, they, they've almost expanded in your mind as to what you think. Your nasal cavities work better. As you get older, the things you used to hate, e.g. mushrooms, cauliflower, etc., they tame down, and to you, they then taste good whether they've got cheese on, white sauce, or don't. But if they are a problem to you, try white sauce, try white cheese. Even some people try barbecue sauce. I can't go for that myself. But in reality, uh, I think it's the problem it is in the human beings, not in the taste of the actual vegetable. Diane, you got any comments on that? Yes, sadly, that is true. As you grow older, you do lose some of your taste receptors and your smell receptors. So the, the flavour of food is actually a complex mixture of senses. It's taste, it's smell, it's texture. 
what the nutritionists actually call mouthfeel, and that is the uh, official technical term. So it's it's a mixture of all those things. It's also temperature. So all of those things contribute to taste. And sadly, as we grow older, uh, we lose some of those or they degenerate a bit. So the, the mix, the, the uh, how we uh, appreciate or um, perceive the mix does change. So I can certainly attest to that in my life, things that I didn't like as a child, I think are really tasty. And I would have asked the question the other way around. I actually like both broccoli and cauliflower, but I learned to like cauliflower first. In fact, I can remember eating cauliflower as a child and thinking it was quite good, um, particularly if we had cheese put on top. Uh, yeah, broccoli, I was a bit sort of uneven about, but now I love both of them with or without cheese. In fact, I can go one step further when it comes to certainly uh, broccoli and cauliflower. I actually prefer the steamed stem more than I do the um, flower head. So we all have our own uh, weird and wonderful tastes. But it's true. When I was when I was younger, I was not particularly keen on the broccoli. I loved cauliflower, wasn't keen on broccoli. And now um, I can't get enough of either of them. So it, uh, but then I did used to get fed them raw when I was younger uh, in salads and stuff, and that may be why I wasn't particularly keen on them. But there That's we go. Beauty. To give you uh, the role of perception in this, my mum used to love the little cauliflower, the little cabbages you get on the stems, you know, courtesy of Napoleon. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've tested this when you actually take a cabbage, because uh, I grow a lot of them, and you chop the big head off and eat that. Uh, sometimes I've left the stems in the ground and beyond a shadow of a doubt, they'll start growing tiny little cabbages all around the stem. So you derive the Brussels sprouts because this first was observed in Brussels uh, once you remove the top head of the cabbage. But my mother insisted, because apparently they were cheaper, insisted on giving us kids all of these little Brussels sprouts and every one of us hated it. And my mum finally gave up after my sister was forced to eat um, the, the Brussels sprouts and they ended up all over the table in yellow slime and mum said, never again. I mean, my sister just sicked up <laughs> Brussels sprouts all over the table. So there is a perception thing here as well. Uh, but now I quite like Brussels sprouts, particularly in white sauce or cheese sauce, uh, and that's probably an ad for the uh, dairy community as well. <laughs> well, I actually find with Brussels sprouts, John, that they, uh, if you if you try them raw, they're actually sweeter than raw cabbage, you know, with your coleslaws and stuff mm. like that. So I actually find that Brussels sprouts make a really nice sort of, you know, slice them thinly, uh, eat them raw in like a salad or whatever with some dressing and whatnot. They're actually uh, they're actually pretty tasty. So there is we this go. a creation research cooking show? This is it? a cooking show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I was going to say creation program. research giving you the important answers on broccoli or, or cauliflower. <laughs> I'm going to leave now because you don't want me cooking for you. <laughs> this is a new program we've discovered. <laughs> Isn't oh, it wonderful don't... what creation touches on? <laughs> we better move on, Sam, quickly. Yes, yes. Otherwise, we'll go down a whole rabbit trail of, of, yeah. of different food types. Uh, right. Okay. That's the only one that I found that is uh, relevant to what we've sort of discussed so far. Um, I have a question here from Doki Doki. 
who has said the secular world believes that the Hore bat, I believe I'm saying that right, I hope so, uh, made it to Hawaii on its own before man got there. Why? What do you think about a bat crossing 2,000 miles of ocean? Diane, any thoughts? Uh, what's it called? The, the hoary bat. All right. Yeah. Well, I, well, hoary means grey, so I presume it means it's some sort of grey bat. We do know that some animals can survive um, what's called rafting on um, great big mats of, of vegetation. Now, this is described for reptiles. I've not heard of it being described for mammals. Uh, bats can fly quite long distances. Uh, yep. Not sure about 2,000 miles of ocean. That does seem a bit far. Um, so I'd say it, it probably was a mixture of um, uh, rafting, um, in other words, being caught up uh, on a, a mat of vegetation. The other thing is they could have been caught up by a, um, a storm and uh, transported that way. Diane, do we they have any articles on uh, lizards, particularly travelling over oceans, land animals travelling on rafts? Do we have any on the fact file or on the Q&A? Uh, we certainly do on reptiles uh, and insects. Um, so if you, what, what, uh, I, I particularly remember raft-riding iguanas uh, just off <laughs> the top of my head, but if, if you look, look that up uh, on the fact file, you probably find some other examples as well. Um, I don't know the different. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry no. uh, I was just going to say, what? About... <laughs> go ahead, Craig. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, well, there is another option, and and that's that's you, we know that the the sea levels have dropped dramatically uh, in the past, um, mm. quite substantially. And I don't know the underwater geography between mainland um, America and Hawaii, but I just wonder if there were more potentially more island hopping um, stages between the mainland and, and Hawaii where bats can easily fly. We, we know bats came to Australia, one of the few placental mammals actually that came to Australia uh, mm. by flying themselves. So um, that, that's why they're, they're here, really. Um, yeah, so I just wonder whether they made the steps. And so also they've also made it to New Zealand. Um, the other thing I would like to know: what is the evidence that the secular world have that these things are the the bats arrived there before human beings? Um, that would be, be interesting. I'll just take your your comment, Craig, because if you look at the sea levels around Australia, uh, and you then draw a map, and this is easy for anybody to do at the moment because of the climate change gurus insisting that sea levels going to keep rising and rising due to climate change. Uh, they therefore have many websites where you can access what was the sea level like uh, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, in the last ice age, etc. Particularly if you go back to the ice ages, you will find that the sea level dropped enormously off the coast of Australia. We've got beaches 100 metres, 200 metres almost, under the current sea level. Now, if you then go to the gap between Indonesia and Australia and you put all that data in, it's already done for you on the websites, you will notice that even if you're a person, you're only left with sort of 20 miles of water to get across. So you don't need an ocean-going vessel and you don't need to fly more than half an hour's journey if you're a bat or an eagle to get to the next block of land. So therefore, 
we are always asking these questions, the evolutionist is, on the assumption that the present is the key to the past, and they forget their own dilemma in saying, well, the sea level has been lower. You do that, and you can island hop a lot further. In fact, at the present time, the biggest issue confronting the Kiwi, you know, those people live on the west, the east island of Australia, and yes, you'll find constitutionally that's how it was originally described. You'll find they're worried about reptiles like our big snakes finally arriving in New Zealand by ocean travel. And it's already happened, but they were dead when they were got there. Praise God, say the Kiwis. But it's a possibility for animals to get from even Australia across to New Zealand quite a large distance by on a, being on a log, being on a raft, or even being washing there. If you're a, a snake, snakes can swim moderately. Uh, a good uh, hurricane behind you, good tornado behind you will get you there fairly quickly. So I think all of the thoughts that have been suggested are viable, uh, more or less, in getting bats, hoary bats, uh, to Hawaii. I, I just did a quick... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Craig, sorry. I, I just did a quick Google search, just a quick comment, just did a quick Google search, and the actual closest landmass, an island, a small, small island, is actually a 1,000 miles from Hawaii. Um, it's still remote, still long distance, but given sea level issues, as we've talking about, been talking about, maybe... Maybe there was more options in the past. Yeah. Well, you can see right. I've just quickly pulled up Google Maps, right, just up on the screen you can see here. And um, there's Hawaii with the red marker in the middle. But can you see all of the underwater uh, elevations, if you like, mm. sort of higher parts of this continental plate where it's kind of pushing up? So, again, uh, I was just, just having a look just out of interest to see. Obviously, it's quite barren over this kind of way. But certainly going up towards the north, you've got all of these potential little um, underwater islands, which lower sea level would certainly expose some of these. So you have actually got mechanisms, means of actually um, sort of lowering the sea level to the point where you can actually get across to the middle. So there's, there's, I think, lower, uh, probably a combination of uh, of them. You know, if you've got several, mm. uh, you've almost got a path there. Look, almost going out to Hawaii. Um, you know, a combination of these islands being exposed and being able to island hop to island hop and it just so happens that hawaii is the only place where it's now left um all the other islands the sea level has risen the islands have Joe, if, down, if, I, if I can add to that um as i've shared before one of my first jobs was to map underwater rivers off the mm. north coast of australia and as part of that you look at the previous sea levels and that island chain stretching to hawaii is characterized by two things. When you live in an era where we have deep sea submersibles, you can actually, in fact, you can probably even do it on Google, go down and look at the geography of those islands, What, not only where they are, but what shape they are. And ma the majority of them have flat tops. So mm -hmm. we know one thing, that's where they get the name guillots from. They've actually been above sea level when they were formed. Mm -hmm. Two things mm -hmm. have happened. Some of them have recently sunk, right? So you find that progression of islands sort of looks like sink, sink, sink. And some of them are recently arising, hence many of the New Zealand or Hawaiian stories about the islands rising up out of the sea. So you only need islands that can be above water for a brief period of time as volcanic islands rising along that chain. 
and and the bats can hop as much as they like. So don't think the present is the key to the past. You will find that if you look at the past with, hey, the sea level was different. After Noah's flood, the sea level was different. During the ice mentioned in Job, the sea level would have been different. Don't think it's a problem just because it's so far for you to swim in the present day world. No, good point. Great stuff. Right, let me just close this down very quickly. Yeah, hang on. Where are we? There we are. Stop sharing. Good stuff. All right. Let's have uh, let's have one more question, Sam, if we can, before we move okay, on okay. Uh, to the next section, and then we'll hand over to John for his um, up. Uh, well, no, not up. Down under. Down under evidence. <laughs> Okay, um, so we've also had a super sticker come in from Doki Doki for five US buckaroos, a character holding their head in the hand saying, incredible. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, we've got a, another question here. This one come in, comes in from Ravi. Good to see you, Ravi. Question, how does a young Earth creationist pers uh, perspective account for the fact that starlight is arriving at Earth from longer than 6,000 light years away? Diane, we have quite a bit on this on the website, correct? We do. We have uh, some e things on both the fact file and on the ask site. That's askjohnmackay.com, uh, that website. Um, people have written to us about uh, the Big Bang Theory, but particularly of light, which is uh, very interesting. There's interesting research on the speed of light, and there are even some secular scientists who will admit the speed of light is uh, is not uh, even though it's proclaimed to be there is evidence that it was faster in the past and so you can find that on uh, both the ask site and in the fact file just look up speed of light mm. and that will make quite a difference to how long it would take far light to arrive from some place in outer space to the earth i'll throw in one other thing which really stymies your current physics which is all based on Charles Lyell's present is the key to the past, which was designed to remove Moses from science. Never forget that. Uh, we can come back to the rest of the question at the end because this is not really related to our topic at the moment, but the principle is uh, when you look at your biblical position, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and there's no reference to a sun. There's no reference to a sun or a moon or a star until the fourth day. Okay, so the earth was here before the sun, but the earth was here on the same day the light was made. So here is the anomaly. In the present day world, the physicist assumes the light got there only after the star sort of began to coalesce from the hydrogen or whatever else made it, and then it gave off light. So the star is there before the light. In the biblical position, the light is there before the star. So you can do all the measurements you like and reach an answer, but your answer will depend on what you assume about what was there first, the hydrogen, the star, then the light, or the world being made, the heavens and the earth, and the light three days at least before the sun, moon, and the stars. You will get different answers, but not because you're using different maths, but be using a totally different starting point. And here is your choice, Ravi. You have to choose... Do I believe the words of the God who was there, who was willing to die on a cross for you and for me? Or do I believe the words of Charles Lyell, Charles Darwin, all the current day humanist astronomers who wouldn't die for one bit of you at all? 
So we can come back to that later. But Diane, again, give us a reference to where they can go and find more information on that. Fact file. And on the Ask John Mackay site, uh, do a keyword search for speed of light. Okay, Joseph, I'm going to make a recommendation because um, I've got quite a, a moderately long bit on animals down under, etc. Craig's just been on. Uh, if you want to do your section next, then we'll come back to me. Sure, yeah, I think that sounds like a good idea. Um, so we'll do my, my bit's not too long. It's fairly short, and then we'll uh, dive into the down under evidence. This is more of a reminder about some of the stuff that we've done more recently. Um, we had our big convention a couple of weeks ago, and it was a great time. There you can see the famous blue lias, the Jurassic lias behind where you see me with the uh, big megaphone. We're actually looking at some rather interesting fossils down there. I'll show you what they are in a minute. But you can see you've got the layers and layers of, well, that's what lias is named after, really, layers and layers. You've got the layers and layers of shale which is the dark stone you've got the thick layer of limestone then you've got more shale then you've got more limestone and you've got layers upon layers upon layers um, and then if you have a look down on the floor where you can see us walking over there's actually a layer of this limestone which extends out at beach level at sea level and this is what's known as the ammonite pavement now i went there years ago and that ammonite pavement was absolutely covered in ammonites Today, it's all sort of eroded and broken down, and but there you go, that's what the sea does. Um, if you actually go slightly further along the beach, you can find another exposure where you had all of those ammonites pushed together. So great evidence, and I'd encourage everybody to come on a field trip with us and actually explore and find out the real evidence for yourself. Stuff like this. Oh, well, there's uh, Dr. Diane Eager, and we found a rather spectacular fossil you can see some of the fossil oricaria the southern pine that's buried in that limestone there so a couple of things number one it's a living fossil these rocks are supposedly 200 million years old or so and yet in a supposed 200 million years fossil pine trees in fact go even more specific fossil southern conifers oricarias have turned into oricarias um in other words they haven't changed in the slightest but look at what they're buried next to there's the big fossil pine tree on the right. On the left, just in front of Diane's fingers there, well, there's the beautiful preservation, but it's actually buried right next to one of those famous curly-whirly ammonites. Now, ammonites are deep-sea creatures. They, uh, if their morphology and their, their um, way that they lived is very similar to what uh, nautiluses are, which they certainly seem to be, they would have traveled down to the depths and back up again at night. And so what on earth is it doing buried right next to a rather spectacularly preserved fossil southern conifer i mean you can tell how long this stuff has been lying around for because well it hasn't been lying around for very long look how well preserved it is there's no worm barrows there's no tunneling in there's no knocking around as it crashes around in water for months on end this has been buried very very quickly indeed and it's been buried next to seashells and we like to make the point that when you've got seashells and you've got them buried next to fossil wood you have evidence of mixed environments and you have evidence of a flood sea creatures and land plants buried together is evidence of a flood for sure 
and uh, here's Susie. And Susie's made a rather spectacular discovery. Can you see what she's pointing at? Now, I've been up and down these beaches for years, right? And we've only ever found one or two of these at any one time. We were really blessed at our field trip down in Dorset because we found about seven or eight of them in one hit. Some rather spectacular fossil nautilus shells. Now, nautiluses are the classic living fossil. Um, in fact, uh, it was Charles Darwin who invented the term living fossil. He said that these are supposed to be anomalies. He said these anomalous forms could even be called the living fossils. And then just a few paragraphs later, he said that it's not the strongest creature that my theory depends on surviving, but the one that's most adaptable to change. And yet we have something that hasn't changed in, well, I suppose 200 million years. It's stuck in a rut. It hasn't changed at all. And you realize very quickly that actually what it's been doing is reproducing after its own kind, just like God told it to do when he created it. So you really don't need the millions of years in the slightest, and there simply isn't any evidence for them in the rocks. All you find evidence of in the rocks is that God created just like he said he did, and you find evidence that they've been buried extremely quickly in flood waters for sure. And of course, Diane had to go and find her own one. Um, but that was all right, because there was plenty of them down on the beach. We found quite a few, didn't we? And some We did indeed. It was wonderful rather spectacular pieces of evidence i mean they're just beautiful stunning creatures uh, in the world today and their fossils are even more spectacular in my opinion you can see all the chambers i mean this is in the side of a rock right so it's been kind of worn down so you can actually see where the shell is you can see the inside chambers really clearly it's a really rather beautiful specimen and we actually have our own collected one which has been cleaned up beautifully and it's back now in our creation research museum collection so a reminder if you can get across to us um on the 29th of october i'll be there diana will be there we'll take you through the museum we'll have some presentations we'll share some food together it'll be a pretty wonderful time and if you can help us prepare for that and get the museum up and going anyway we could certainly do with your help very soon all right this was what we were looking at right back at that first picture Look at what I'd found. Oh, you see the ammonite, the big curly-whirly? It's interesting because quite a lot of these have actually not got their middles in them anymore. I mean, we know that the ammonites got thinner as they went to the middles. It seems that these ones were so thin that they actually got destroyed. But you've certainly got these large curve outside curves still there. And you've got quite a few of them buried in this part, which may one day become the ammonite pavement number two, right? But have a look at what we've got as well some beautiful fossil timber in fact this is the first piece of fossil timber that i've actually found down on the jurassic coast and this bit was at monmouth which is uh, over to the right hand side of lime regis as you face the sea um it's actually an in situ and by that i mean it's actually still buried in the rock that's part of the cliff fossil timber oh, we have to be careful because me and john get confused over in situ you see in situ doesn't mean the tree lived here died here and got buried in situ as it was what i mean by in situ is it's actually buried in the position that it was buried in it's still in the position that it was buried in in the cliffs most of the time you find bits of fossil timber that have washed out of the cliffs they've rolled around and they get washed up on the beach with a great big chunk 
of wood in it. And it's fantastic evidence. You can look at it. You can find it buried next to seashells. You can look at how well preserved it is. But what you don't get to do is get the big picture of how this wood was like when it was actually buried in the cliff. Which way was it pointing? How was it buried originally? How was it exposed? What was it buried next to? Well, this was pretty exciting because it's the first time that I've come across this fossil timber actually in its original position as it was buried in the rocks during Nara's flood. And one thing's for sure, it certainly wasn't in situ in living form, right? It didn't live there, die there, and get buried there. It got ripped up. It got stripped of its branches, stripped of its roots. It get washed into position, buried next to deep sea ammonites and fossil shells and even fossil fish, all buried together and a wonderful piece of evidence of a massive flood dump. And I'm hoping that the sea will continue to do its work and expose this because this is the ammonite pavement take two, right? This is another ammonite pavement in the making. The first one's being eroded away. The second one's getting eroded back. And uh, in a few years time, who knows, you may even be able to see another spectacular ammonite pavement there. But I'm certainly hoping that if it does do that, then it'll expose even more of this fossil timber in location in the rock um, because it'll give us a good indication of the way that the water was flowing. You see, just one piece of fossil timber on its own isn't enough. You need to have two or three pieces so you can actually start to see the direction of flow. And what's interesting is when you start to find places on planet Earth which have got these fossil timbers, uh, multiple fossil timbers, you find that you're dealing with a log jam for sure. It's pointing in mostly the same direction, once or twice you'll find anomalies, but that's to be expected in a log jam. You'll find the ends are abraded. You'll find they've had their branches stripped and their roots stripped. They're pointing in the same way, buried next to large boulders and deep sea creatures. You're definitely looking at evidence of a large, overwhelming flood. And these are the Jurassic rocks. And we like to remind people that it was Alexander von Humboldt who named Jurassic, and he was the king's geographer. He traveled all over the world, and he called them the Jurassic rocks after the rocks in the Jura Mountains. Nothing to do with millions of years, nothing to do with evolution, everything to do with where they were first studied, and the fact that they were a worldwide deposit just like the ones in the Jura Mountains. The rocks here are just like the ones in the Jura Mountains. The rocks there are just like the ones in the Jura Mountains. And so it makes a good point. These Jurassic rocks go all over the world. They've all been buried in water. They've all been buried catastrophically in a flood uh, because you see the trees and the ammonites, the deep sea creatures and the land plants buried together. Excellent evidence of a worldwide flood for sure. And here's some more of that fossil timber. Uh, this is in a, a famous place in the Isle of Portland, which is uh, slightly further along uh, towards the um, east of the Jurassic Coast. And it's actually a giant polystrate tree that was dug up and re-erected, a bit like the uh, uh, Jurassic Arc trees that you've got, um, up on the top of one of the hills in Portland. This used to be a big mining big stone quarry area uh, where the stonemasons would come and collect the famous Portland stone which uh, was the favourite of Sir Christopher Wren which if you know anything about your English history he was the one who designed things like St Paul's Cathedral and he used Portland stone with the wonderful fossils inside it and they used to put these on display as a fossil garden for people to walk around um, many years ago 
And now, of course, it's part of a well, it's sort of part of a hotel uh, area. But you can still come and see it. You can still come and explore. It still is pretty spectacular. And we've got a great big group photo of us all right next to this giant fossil tree. So it's amazing the kind of evidence you can find if you know what you're looking for including things like these. Ah, this was in one of the museums that we visited. Can you see the beautiful curly-whirly ammonites? Can you see how they're all squashed up together? Yeah, these creatures didn't live, die, and get buried in one place. They've been washed into position for sure. Even though they're sea creatures, they've actually been drowned and actually crushed together. But look at what they're buried next to. Almost smashed up through them, these beautiful pieces of fossil timber fossil wood yeah lime regis beautifully prepared by the way but certainly evidence of a flooding event a drowned flooding event and another example that we like to show people is actually on display in many of the museums ah oh, this is uh, one of our you see nautilus shells more living fossils beautiful example and the ammonites uh, this was a rather enormous slab that I found a number of years back. I couldn't take it back with me as much as I'd liked. But if we go down to the Jurassic Coast, you can find that there's even dinosaurs there. Land dinosaurs, proper dinosaurs, not the uh, swimming dinosaurs as they're often called, which aren't technically dinosaurs, but they're certainly found there. Again, land creatures and sea creatures buried together. This one's called the Skeletosaurus, and it's on display in the Charmouth Heritage Centre. There's the reconstruction of it there. Um, and there's the picture of it in the Charmouth Heritage Centre. Now, do you notice one thing? It's squashed. It's been squashed for sure. But you can find some even more spectacular evidence if you know what you're looking for in this very fossil. Now, they have big pictures all throughout the Charmouth Heritage Centre saying, don't take any photographs. These are all, uh, you know, private specimens. So we had to go. And John, I know you a number of years back, went and actually found the owner of this specimen and asked if we could go take some photos. And look at what the owner's pointing at there. I mean, can you see it in between the big bits of bones? Getting a bit closer, we're actually looking at food in the throat. Now, you can tell with food whether it's on the way down or whether it's on the way back up. And this is certainly food that's on the way back up. This is a vomiting Skeletosaurus. Not only is there food in the throat, there's actually food in the stomach as well. Food in the stomach, food in the throat. This creature has been squashed. He's been squashed so suddenly and violently. He's in the classic drowned dinosaur pose. He's actually had his food forced back up his throat. He's halfway through vomiting. Food in throat, vomit, squashed, drowned for sure. Yeah, we're definitely looking at evidence of a flooding event. In fact, all of the Skeletosauruses are found in the one layer buried next to trees, buried next to swimming dinosaur creatures, buried next to plants, buried next to fish. Yeah, definitely evidence of a flooding event for sure. Drowned, seashell, buried dinosaurs. And a reminder of the point, and this is a point that we'll be making tomorrow as well, because in both the chalk and the galt that we'll find at Folkestone, uh, you have land creatures and seashells and plants all buried together. Definitely evidence of a flood for sure. And these are big deposits. They're not small ones. They go all over the world. Evidence of a global flood for sure. Well, a reminder, 
creationresearch.net, creationresearchuk.com. You can find out our streaming sites. You can watch more of the evidence. You can support the very expensive projects that we have, like a museum project, like getting Dr. Diane Eager over here to film her and uh, produce these documentaries and actually help us with the museum and volunteer with us as well. And all that information can be found on our website so i'm just going to finish it there there's a nice little bit of evidence from the uh up oversight uh yeah up oversight of things um john how about we dive straight into your next section uh which will take us through and then we'll have a few questions before the sounds end sounds good to me joe of course this is the fossil guy here john mckay the creation fossil um struggling of course with powerpoints and getting things onto your screen over there so let's see if we can do this sam is my powerpoint still up it is indeed yes okay can i just make it work no i can't so what do i need to do on this system to make it work so you'll need to go down to your bottom bar yeah you see your bottom bar and you want to yep. hover over where it says powerpoint there should be two windows that come up yeah yeah. You want to click onto the PowerPoint itself. Ah, there we are. Yeah, all good. Good. Okay. So we're doing well now. So taking you back down under, now we've been up over for a little bit, um, there's not too many countries in the world where you can have the animals wandering through the shop. Now, people in Australia, visitors to Australia, love this sort of quirky business. We can get Aussie animals, baby Aussie animals. You can pick them up. You can be there at their birth. You can do all sorts of things. Now, Joseph, I believe, as a qualified zookeeper, is planning a few little animal reptile displays at your new museum, eh, Joe? I think that would be great when you finally get to them. And the kids, they just respond incredibly. In fact, Joe and I have taken snakes to school classrooms and all sorts of interesting things. In, in fact, even to a church, <laughs> quite amazing. You can come to Australia and you can meet these creatures in Eastern Australia, up in the gum trees. They love the blossoms and they add a lot both to the colour and to the, well, they are hard to see in the wild because they mix in so well. It's like a soldier's, um, you know, absolutely ornate uniform, except it, it breaks up his outline. Look at those beautiful birds. And they do love the gum tree blossoms. And they can be quite inquisitive. Well, this is Australia. This is down under. This is one of these interesting places down under if you can afford an extra day or two to go visit it. Oh, there's plenty of rocks. So we know a lot about its geology. There's all sorts of interesting layers, including some modern sand deposits. And, uh, well, there's one of our long-term photographers. So don't thank me for these pictures. This is John Bean and his wife, Glenn, long-term friends and supporters of the ministry. So many of our creatures, they specialize in animal creatures, are done by them. Thank you, thank you, including that one. Oh, what's that one? That's an extinct critter off the coast of Australia, the Lord Howe turtle. Notice it's a really horny turtle. Extinct, you might be glad about that. There's all sorts of interesting living and extinct creatures in uh, the Australian zone. You know what that is? It's a koala. Uh, when was it? Well, a friend of mine took this picture a few years back. Uh, when? Uh, that's a couple of years ago now. It's a koala rushing into the surf, just off the islands here in, in Eastern Australia, out there on the beach. As to why it's doing it, we've discovered that it, it, he wants to get rid of his fleas. 
if he can't eat enough gum trees, uh, eucalyptus oil, which makes their 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 blood taste pretty awful to the um, fleas and that, and they'll use the surf to go for a wash. Now, I'll guarantee that's not in your textbook, but they do it, and they sleep a lot. Eucalyptus oil is the same uh, same cause. Um, it makes them very sleepy. It makes them totally inactive for 18 hours a day, and they're pretty hard to wake up. And if you wake them up in the day, watch out for a bad temper. And, of course, you can go to southern Australia or eastern Australia, even western Australia, and meet our rather unique black swans, the ones that Captain Cook struggled with because everyone knew swans were white. Well, that's all they were used to. But in Australia, they're black. But if Captain Cook had joined Charles Darwin and they'd travel around the world, you'd find that Aussie swans are actually black with a little bit of white and red. If you go to South America, you find swans are actually mostly white, but they've got black necks. And if you go to England, you will find that they have black, black nodules above their beaks, but there's almost no black on the rest of them. Now, these are used as examples of evolution, but they're not even as varied as cabbages. Keep that in mind. You can produce hundreds of varieties, even in the same species. So most of what Darwin is talking about are not evidence of evolution, but variation, sometimes not even with its own kind, sometimes within its own species. Now, I've encouraged you over the years to try and get all of these differences in a perspective. And the perspective begins there. God made us. He made man in his image. We think because God thinks. We speak because God speaks. Male and female, we were created by God. We didn't happen by evolution. We didn't happen by ourselves. And last week, we reminded you that you therefore need to think the way Jesus thinks. Because the Bible talks about a problem called sin. When Ravi and the others deal with why, what about this, what about that, mostly at the basis of our doubts, my doubts, Joseph's doubts, everybody's doubts, is the fact that we have a problem called sin that's very real. So we need to have the thinking power, the thinking uh, picture that's in the mind of Jesus Christ, which you'll only get by humbling yourself and asking him for that. Okay, now, one of the ways we'll be doing this I need to remind you here that last week we dealt with a few polystrates, particularly as I was preaching over the weekend down on the Gold Coast. And on the 27th, 28th, depending on whether you're in America or in Australia, we'll be dealing with this issue, the polystrate trees, the ones I found over the years. And George's question that was sent in, what's inside them? Are they permineralized? Are they fossilized? Are they hollow? We'll cover them all. Um, and we'll be dealing with the leaning ones and how they get to be like that. So if you want a great program, go to SFT, see when we'll be on, 26th, 27th of October, not too far away, and it'll be a great problem, a great program on creation and the flood and these fossil trees. And I would remind you, yes, thank you guys who've sent all sorts of weird and wonderful things in with your donation today. Uh, send your donations in. The program needs your help. The research needs your help. You have questions? We will have a question time coming up at the end of this next one. Okay, down under, up over is our topic today. My turn is back down under. Here's some of those nice little wombats. Kids love them. Farmers hate them. They can dig huge holes. The bigger the wombat, the bigger the hole, the faster you fall down it. And, of course, they are built like tanks. Most of you don't appreciate 
how heavy a wombat can get. And when you hit it, it leaves a distinct wombat-shaped impression in your car. Often you come off worse than it does. And, of course, they have two front teeth, hence their name, Diprotodontus. Here's one of their fossil relatives. That's in our collection. The owner passed on to be with the Lord a little while ago, and he donated this to our Creation Museum. See on the left-hand side, two front teeth. There's a fossil wombat at the top and a present-day wombat down at the bottom. They used to be bigger, now they're smaller. They're cousins, the Diprotodonts. In fact, they're all Diprotodontia from kangaroos onwards. They used to be monsters. Now they're mostly midgets. The trend that Craig was talking about shows up. It shows up in your Bible, Genesis 1 to 11. Remember, that's the history Craig was mentioning. Created perfection, a fall where sin came in, then Noah's flood, then massive climate change, all the way down to nations and tribes, which leave us with the puzzle, how did the Chinese know the world would end by fire uh, and down to us today? Uh, and we can talk about the record God has given us, which does include an end judgment by fire. It's not that. That's the popular belief system, but it's absolute 100% faith-based, blind faith-based. Dawkins' faith is blind. Christian faith is fact-based. It begins there. In the beginning, God created. No, we weren't there to see it. So by faith, you believe that. By faith, you believe that God created. But you see, he's told you there's plenty of evidence. That's what the book of Romans is about. The evidence is so clear, even you unbelievers can see it. Even mm. you atheists understand it. And even you agnostics will be held accountable by God because of the evidence. Um, there's a bit you need to know because you could never conclude that just by watching the world today where Putin and the Ukrainians are fighting each other to the death. Everything God made was very good, war not included. And then there's that bit. All things were made by and for Christ. So we're trying to look at Australian animals, koalas. They love the gum leaves. You can even make them get on the back of your dog. I've got heaps of koalas in my backyard. They're cute, but they've got long claws and two thumbs on each hand. Um, they're, they're interesting. They're different. They're not found anywhere else. How come? They're in Australia. They certainly are great tourist attractions, and they are a very good way of raising money in Australia provided you treat them with respect and you don't try and wake them up in the middle of their sleep. Everything that God made was very good. That's got to be your starting point. I don't apologize for that. That's what the biblical record says, and it's the record of the God who was there. And then he tells you, you can see the evidence and you'll be held accountable to him because of it. There's John Bean. Look at that cute little possum on his shoulder. There's a possum I found in, in my library storage shed. I decided to make friends with him. How do you keep them? They love dark holes. Um, sometimes they're very tiny. They love to eat sweet things. Look at these variety of possums that are in Australia. Oh, possums do exist elsewhere. And you find fossil possums in Canada. You find fossil platypus in Canada. You find fossil platypus in South America. Amazing. Oh, they like to eat sweet things. This guy's eaten a bit too much, don't you think? Too many sweet things. Actually, it's the tourists who are killing these by the fact they love to feed them things they shouldn't be eating. You see, in the beginning, all creatures ate plants. 
Do you have a perspective when you're trying to explain Australian animals, how they got there, how long ago it was, that there was no death or suffering in the beginning? The quolls didn't attack other animals and tear them to pieces. The Tasmanian tigers didn't scratch and bite and spread cancer. There was no death and there was no suffering. We've got the world's biggest chickens. Aren't they cute? Now, they, they are a type of bird that's found in South Africa and they're found in South America, different species, different varieties, but the same sort of creature. Um, yep, emus can't fly and they're very shy. So if you want to get close up, you, you need to do that. Or you need a good telephoto lens or you need to do something stupid. They are inquisitive. They will walk up to you to see what you're doing, provided you keep dead still. Ah, amazing. Um, yep. How was that picture taken? Do you realize you can get them up close if you lie in the grass, put your feet up, wiggle your toes? They'll come over to see why you are actually in the grass and you can get some good close-up pictures. But when you dig up their fossils, they used to be bigger and now they're smaller. Emus, and this is from the Australian Museum's book on, on giant fossils. They used to be bigger, now they're smaller. Okay, the biblical picture includes that. God said to Adam, because you've disobeyed me, because you ate the tree from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge, you'll go back to dust, and dust is not very good if you want to stay alive. You're catching it? When God made the world, it was very good. Don't blame him for what's gone wrong. It was in perfect shape when he gave it to our hands. Of course, you'll find the koalas and the kangaroos at our theme parks, and the kangaroos love to come and have their share of your McDonald's fries. But can I warn you, don't give the little baby Joey a push and shove him away because Dad's watching. And Dad, Dad is really good at boxing. And those big long claws on its feet, no, they won't tear each other apart. They have reinforced stomach pads, but you don't. And they range in size right down to the tiny little, well, look how small that guy is. They range in size from that tiny up to the tree-climbing kangaroos up to the, uh, well, the one-metre-high black faces all the way up to the two-metre-high giant reds. Now, these mainly live in the outback because it's a bit hard for them to fit in the jungles and they have to be able to hop. So they migrate very well out on the plains. But you see the fossil on the left? That's how big they used to be. There's a giant grey on the right, as tall as me. You see, that's change, but it's not evolution. Now, the Bible includes good examples of change, including lifespan. Methuselah, who knew Adam and who knew Noah, lived 969 years. Wow. And he died. But you see, the dying bit is not very good. But then Adam's sin brought death. God told him how to avoid it, but he didn't. Everything God made was very good, and good did not include death. Why am I stressing that? You theistic evolutionists need to wake up to yourself. Your theory includes death as part of the process. And God said, no, I created man. I created all these creatures, and it was very good. There was no death, no suffering. From creation to Noah's flood, a daily mist watered the earth. You're wondering how long they, they could live and why? Take the climate that God made, the one that was very good. This one, well, that's outside of Rockhampton. It's not very good. See how dry it is? Go up into that gum tree type forest. There's a cliff. 
climbing these sort of things keeps me moderately healthy in my old age. Yep, have to acknowledge it now. The district nurse visited me the other day and said, now you're 75, you get a free ECG. Not that I asked for it. You can get your heart checked. You get all of those things all for free. There are some advantages in, in living to be a fossil. But you see the actual trees there? Fossil trees. And buried in the midst of rounded stones. These are stream flood deposited. They haven't worn down to be tiny, so they didn't spend too long in the stream, but they were quickly buried and it was a flood type deposit buried amidst fossil trees that have turned to stone. But at the moment, you don't know how big they are until you get up on the top. There's my friend Eric. You see, he's touching the stem of a tree. Well, it turns out the stem of a tree ended up being huge. There's one of my daughters. There's another one a bit further back. There's Mr. Eric way back in the distance. No, we didn't discover this tree. It was found by an oil drilling rig and it turned out to be 130 metres long, nearly 410 feet on the non-metric scale. And it was 30 metres around. And it was a giant fossil pine tree. We found quite a few of them. Well, not me personally. I've only ever seen that one. But I've seen this one in the museum, the Dinosaur Museum out at Winton. Oh, that's not the whole tree. That's just a branch. Look what they say. It's a 100 million year old conifer tree branch. Now, we don't have any pine trees, conifer trees with branches that big today. Now, I don't believe the 100 million years old, but the fact is it's easy to prove it's a conifer because it just looks like conifers today. Um, and it's easy to prove it was huge. The rest of it's still in the ground. And this is one branch. Now, to give you an idea, I made up this diagram for America uh, to give it first. The man was six feet, nearly two metres tall. Put him beside a jumbo jet. You know, the ones that were put out to pasture a couple of years ago now, um, 250 feet, uh, six feet long. There's the man at the left-hand side. Now put the tree in the picture. Now that's a tree. Do you realise in a world that had a mist every morning, there was no floods? So the climate change is a post-flood event. The climate change in Victoria that's flooding everywhere didn't happen in the first world. You didn't get washed away or snapped off by hurricanes. It didn't happen. Things are so different now. By the time you get to the flood, only Noah and those with him on the ark remained alive. Everything was very good. Not for the people who didn't make it onto the ark. You see, don't blame God for a bad world. Everything he made was very good. If Ravi and the others want to know what's wrong with the planet, look in a mirror. It's us. Well, my mum used to take me to the museum every year. Once a year, we would go a long way into the city and took a long time in those days. No fast transport. We didn't have a car. And I watched this experiment. Lungfish. Why lungfish? Well, our lungfish in the one river system they were in were in struggling. They built dams. They, we'd had lots of droughts. The lungfish were in trouble. So the scientists took them and they put them in growth ponds and they were multiplying them in-house and then releasing them again. Well, the good news is that decent-sized lungfish and his descendants have survived very well. So the lungfish is no longer on the endangered system. He's not going to become extinct. Well, what's interesting is the lungfish, because he's had so many experiments done on him, we know a lot about him. 
um, we know that he never stops growing. He grows pretty fast for in his immaturity. Then he'll keep growing, but very slow. Um, there's a picture of present-day lungfish. There he is compared to the fossil lungfishes. He used to be a monster. Now he's a midget. Now, if you want a good interpretation of this, I'm pretty sure it tells you lungfishes used to live much longer on average. But then the Bible says so did people. And the last one you've got a decent record of is Moses, who was 120 years old when he died. Now, you might think, wow, that's a long life. Well, not compared to Methuselah, it's not. So even humans have lived shorter lives. But Moses, why did he die? Well, it's certainly true when he died, it wasn't very good because we know why he died. He didn't die of old age. It says Moses, being 120 years old, was sound in body. He had the body of a young man still. But you see, Moses sinned. And as a leader, I'm, I'm sorry, but you see, God gives leaders more privileges, but he also gives them more responsibilities. Moses disobeyed God in a simple thing, like the instructions he gave to rocks to bring forth water. <laughs> Moses said, do I have to bring forth water? No, Moses could never do that. It was God who did that, and Moses forgot to give credit. Moses sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Moses didn't die because he was old. He died because he sinned. Well, we have a few crocodile hunters in Australia. Here's one I used to know by Robbie. Now look at his friend, the crocodile. Robbie discovered ages ago that if you hit a crocodile on the nose, it accepts you as its leader. You can do things like that. By the way, the croc can't turn around and bite you because its head and its neck are not very flexible because uh, you probably wouldn't be willing to take the risk. But Robbie's discovered that the pictures of crocodiles in the caves the Aborigines painted, they used to be bigger. But then the fossils did too. 100-year-old croc on the right, fossil croc, how old? I suspect it used to be really old. And if you can't get the picture yet, Here's a croc, present-day one, beside a man. There's a fossil croc. They used to be monsters. Now they're midgets. Of course, in the early days, they only ate plants and plant food. You say, that's not possible. Look at their teeth. Well, even today, the baby crocs will swim up the rivers and they will collect a pile of stones in their stomach and it's because they can't chew, they can only rip. Whether they leap out of the water and they grab fruit which they're known to do, they still can't chew it up. The stones in their stomach actually act as a rolling mill. Amazing. They can, just like the giant megalodonts, they can digest plant food. Change is true. What's the point Craig made? What's the point Joseph's made? The point Diana's made? But it's not evolution. Variation even within a species for animals, as well as for plants, as well as human beings. You saw the Chinese lady back at the start. She's not a different species. She certainly has what appear to be different eye shapes, but perhaps it's just due to the percentage of fat in the top half of her eyelid, and it's not even a mutation in the normal sense. Can I encourage you? Support our research. Join us on the 26th or the 27th of October, and uh, I'd encourage you, come in now with your questions as to why they may have been so big or how did all this happen. Joe, if you can switch me off and put me back on the... Uh, main screen again we go down to here and down to there and we should be right 
Look at that. I did that all by myself. I need rounds of applause and Dickie Docky to send in another cup. Oh, well thank done. You. Well done, Look right. that. good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> well, that leads us nicely on to the last 20 minutes or so mm -hmm. to deal with some Q&A. And I see that the chat's been uh, fairly lively, which is wonderful. Yeah. So thank you all good. very much. Sam, over to you. Let's uh, let's do some questions. Any thank yous? Uh, any questions? Let's go. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, Neil Grindley is coming with five British buckaroos. God bless you, mate. Uh, and we have a question with a donation from our good friend George Bond. He's sent in 20 Aussie buckaroos. How's the bookshop issue fixed? Um, it appears for everybody except for you, George. Uh, we've tr tried it up here, uh, and uh, I'd encourage you. We have one guy who lives not far from you. He tried it, and uh, uh, I don't know if it's a problem with your postcode, but it certainly has worked three or four times in the last day and a half as we've been testing it insanely. And folks out there, if you aren't aware of it, if you've been trying to order anything for the last couple of weeks, we began to notice we weren't getting any orders and no donations. And then George sent a problem and said, the, your web doesn't seem to recognize where I live. Um, uh, we don't know if you live on the other side of the moon, George. We have no delivery to there. But in reality, we then discovered that we'd received nothing for a past couple of weeks. And there's just not enough staff to keep track of that. So we got working on it. And it turns out as soon as we posted our new book, I'll hold it up again, Tights, Mites and Fossil Fights. Put me on big screen, Sam, so they can all see that. Can I encourage you in, in Australia? The other people, apart from George, ordered this to deliberately test it. And it certainly has uh, taken their order and accepted it. It's the resource of the week. And with Christmas coming up, you can try ordering in England and Australia, Starboy, a great story, cartoon form for kids, uh, teens and things like that. Love it as well. You'll find those really helpful understanding the Christmas star, understanding the rocks and fossils. And George, as far as we can find, it works for everybody except for you. Uh, I think you sent a donation um, uh, through PayPal. Um, advise us again if you're still having troubles and it won't recognize you because then I suspect we've got a, a mailing list out problem with the post office, but we, we'd have to take that up separately. So mostly good news, George. The rest of you, um, you, you can send us a donation to test it if you like it. We'd be really grateful for that. All right, then. Uh, we've also had just come in from Doki Doki, uh, five US buckaroos of pair character doing a classic mic drop. I don't have a microphone, but I have a pen. There you go. Um, classic pen so, drop. A pen drop. There you go. Um, right. Okay. So this one, I think, is a bit. Well, <laughs> this one's a bit more of a jokey question. Uh, George Bond has said, Can you ask John to stop sending us the rains from Queensland down to Victoria? We've had enough. Don't need many more, John. <laughs> well, we've, we've been actually praying that it won't rain up here and flood us out. So perhaps what you need is more Victorians praying. But I'd also like to point out that the this is not your worst wet season. Your worst wet season was on record is back in 1934. And your records go all the way back to the first fleet, uh, basically. And the people who went from there down to Victoria settled in tents. We even have the climate written in hand by the captains, uh, the guys who left the ship and they took their ships. I mean, ships in those days were really well equipped to actually monitor the weather because weather was so important 
to sailors, more important than it is today because we've got all the automatic computerized stuff. But these guys compiled your records and we have it right back from Surf Settlement in Port Melbourne. So 1934 holds the record and 1934, you couldn't blame climate change at all, although climate change is a good description, but they are blaming CO2 and methane and even New Zealanders. It's, I mean, the headlines say New Zealand to tax farting cows. That's how basal it's got over there. And the farmers, of course, are throwing their hands up. It has got nothing to do with flatulent cows uh, at all. Um, you can easily fix that problem by actually giving them, uh, you know, a probiotic that deals with methane, if that's what you think the issue is. So uh, you'll find that this is used as an excuse. So, George, a lot more prayer down there. But perhaps you need to pray that your anti-God politicians will be voted out. Honestly, George, you sounded more and more like the British every day, complaining about the weather. Um, right. Uh, so, oh, look at this. Another super chat come in. Ten New Zealand buckaroos. Uh, thanks, Creation Research Team. You're all fabulous. I think that's the first New Zealand buckaroos we've had on the show. I was going to say, I don't think I recognised the NZD symbol before. So, um, yeah, it's good. There you go. Well, nice stuff. Look at that. Right. Okay. So uh, back on to questions. Shogiwa comes in with this whopper. How group slash clumped are ammonites when they are alive? Impossible wow. to answer since they're dead. Yeah. That's a fair point. <laughs> At fair the end point. of this, is something that we were talking about today, wasn't it, Diane, with the homeschoolers, that yeah. although the fossil record is regarded as a history of life on Earth or a record of life on Earth, the reality is it's a record of death on earth right they're all dead um there are some things you can make guesses at there are some things you can um use examples in the modern world and work backwards but you've got to be careful to make sure that your interpretations are reasonable interpretations and they don't presuppose a preset of presuppositions right one of the best questions you can ask an evolutionist is can you show me evidence of and then whether it's creation, one child, uh, sorry, one kind of animal changing into another kind, whether it's evidence of slow burial or so on and so forth. Can you show me evidence of this that doesn't presuppose evolution to have happened? Because you'll find that almost every answer that they give is only able to be answered because they've already accepted evolution to be something that is actually happening. It's a trick that John taught me a while back. Now, when you're dealing with clumped ammonites, well, you've got to think these are sea creatures, right? Um, and you've got to remember what creatures do we see today that are similar? Well, the only similar ones we can see today are the Nautilus, uh, which is the only shelled cephalopod still alive today. And that's what ammonites were. They were shelled cephalopods. And uh, you look at their behaviors and you look at the way that these creatures have died, especially washed up smashed up into large pieces of wood that a number sheer number of these ammonites in one place i mean would you they if this is a record of life would they've been able to survive like that it's highly unlikely because you've got to have these creatures being able to feed you've got to have these creatures being able to live and move around and well diane you were there on the ammonite pavement there wasn't a single space without an ammonite in it it was absolutely <laughs> heaving so you certainly are looking at something other than a living environment for sure so that's about as far as you can go with it it's certainly evidence of them being washed together it's evidence of them being washed in a flood because you've got the presence 
of um, wood, fossil wood buried next to them. Um, but you can't really work out how grouped or clumped or unclumped they were when they were alive to be to a point of, you know, you can't be super specific about it. You have a good idea, but that's about as far as you can go. Joe, I'll add to that. Um, we had a specimen in which there are thousands of trilobites, but they are baby trilobites, no more than a quarter inch in size to a half inch in size, a centimetre and a bit, right? And they are rolled up. But if you look at the orthodox interpretation, it says here is a trilobite nursery, right? Now, in reality, if you start out with a nursery concept, you should have mama and papa somewhere nearby and all the babies in a nursery, but they've already learned to roll up. They, they had that automatic reaction. So it's a catastrophic deposit and catastrophe involves moving water. So they're unlikely to be buried in the nursery at, at the very least. And by the way, we make small specimens of that rock available so you can get your own baby rolled up trilobites for Christmas and give it to your kids. In fact, like Joe, you have many fossils available for sale, Joe. We do, and we will be working on that next week, getting even more back up on the website to sell. So uh, in time for Christmas, so keep watching. Yeah, so we have these as well. So if you are interested in, in Australia, then you can get these specimens of us. Uh, they're not the cheapest because you have to get the big rocks and split it up into littler rocks and then make sure it's accurate in what you say about it. So you will find that the interpretation is usually if there's a lot there, it was a nursery and it turns out to be nonsense since they're all catastrophically rolled up and you can learn a lot about trilobites. But when you look at the Nautilus and that today, I know of no place where there are mega deposits of Nautilus. Uh, I only ever see them Either they wash in off the coast of the Barrier Reef up north, right on the beaches you'll find them. By the time they get onto the beaches, they're usually cracked, sometimes smashed uh, if they're in a storm, or I've seen them floating in Bass Strait. Um, I don't know if this guy was disoriented, but he was coming up and down in the early morning, and normally they'd only come up at night, and he was totally disoriented, but doing all the classical floating, but just one and you won't see. In fact, Diane, have you ever seen a Nautilus in the sea out here? No, haven't. They seem to be fairly sort of um, solitary creatures that swim in the water column. Craig, what about you? You've ever seen any? No. No, they are exceptionally rare and never in a crowd. So uh, what you're looking at at Prime Regis, and uh, I saw that, um, that that fabulous museum display of the mega um, ammonites and that big ones, little ones with the trees. In fact, Joe, if you want to find that picture again and put it up in a moment, it, most people never notice it, but the trees are actually squashed into one another and you can actually see them bending over the last picture you showed of those trees and you'll see some Nautilus, uh, some ammonites are flat, some of them are actually vertical. So the whole thing is washed in together and then compressed. And that's why it's so well preserved, as well as the trees being squashed on one another. It's a catastrophic flood type deposit. And those trees, by the way, many of them were equisetums, as well as your pine trees. They were not just not just uh, solid wood ones. They were the hollow based um, giant tree reeds that no longer get to be that big. OK, it's the next one, not that one, Joe. There, see the tree squashed? Hmm. Right, squashed over here. another tree. Yeah, so there you are. 
So catastrophic rapid burial that squashes the pine trees and uh, even preserves the equisetums. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for that, John. Um, all right, let's move on. Okie dokie. Right, okay. So this next question comes in from uh, A George 527 And they say, question, is there any evidence that snakes could be or could have been vegetarian in the Garden of Eden? Well, if I start... Um, with the biggest piece of evidence uh, that there is out there, which is in the Bible, when God created uh, all creatures, it says that he gave them, and we were dealing with this with the uh, homeschoolers today as well, he only gave them permission to eat plants. So the very presence of that Bible verse in Scripture, Genesis 1.30, um, tells you that that's exactly what they ate. In terms of looking for evidence in modern-day snakes, you've got to remember that we're 6,000 years down the degeneration scale, and uh, many of these, well, we certainly know that snakes have changed for good. We know that they used to have legs. Some of them still have legs, but they're tiny little stumps. They're called um, spurs today. It, the big pythons, right? But there certainly are um, legged snakes in the fossil record. So snakes have changed, and snakes have changed quite significantly. Okay, what about their diet? Well, you can deal with venom, and we've dealt with venom many times on this show and other shows as well, and you find that venom is a digestive fluid, so you find uh, evidence of the most venomous snakes being in the hardest-to-live places, which just makes sense, because if you're not venomous enough, um, then you're going to die out in those places. In terms of evidence of snakes today eating plants, because we've spoken about um, teeth, we've spoken about 100% vegetarian animals containing venom and things like that. What's interesting is there's actually been a number of cases that I've come across, both in the scientific literature as well as in the um, sort of, you could call it amateur observation from a number of people around the world, including in the zookeeping world. Um, if I remember correctly, I think there was a paper published in Bioscience a few years back. Uh, I think the name, if you want to go look it up, is Lily White. Um, but basically, they had observed Cottonmouth, one of the, the snakes uh, in the States, right, uh, that they'd found Cottonmouth droppings, so, you know, poo, basically, that were composed almost entirely of seaweed, right? So these snakes had been consuming seaweed. Um, what it was for, they were not quite sure. There were various suggestions, but they'd certainly actually been digesting them, and it was properly digested. Um, and so there's an interesting uh, example. A final one, because I saw this question come up earlier, so I just pulled up a quick video from my own records. Uh, you can find this video online. It's not my video, but it's one that I came across. It's actually about 10 minutes long, so we're not going to show it, all of it at all, but I'm pretty sure it shows what we need to show in the first couple of minutes. So just have a watch of this. Okay. 
I'll stop it there because, like I say, the video is like seven, ten minutes long. Um, but you can see it's a whip snake, and he goes along and he keeps on eating grapes. Uh, this was shot in Spain, uh, and he just goes along from grape to grape, munching him down and swallowing him down, seemingly for no reason other than he was just enjoying some nice grapes. So there's certainly evidence of snakes eating plants and fruits, um, and even seaweeds. And uh, you've got to remember that although uh, not it's not just the snake that's gone downhill it's not just the snake that's undergone serious change the plants have as well and so the plants are no longer as nutritious or able to sustain animals as they used to be and the snakes have also gone downhill so not only are they able to survive in the same way they're not able to digest the same kind of things so um You've got to get into this picture of the good to bad to worse rather than the other way around, which is what evolution teaches. Really what we see is the good to bad to worse in every single case. So there's my comments. Anything else from you folks? Um, you can probably go search online or you can search on our website for quite a few things. Look up vegetarian um, animals, vegetarian uh, sharks, vegetarian crocodiles online. I came across that the other day. Um, so you'll find all of these really do exist and uh, uh, they're very, very real vegetarian lions, vegetarian cats, uh, vegetarian dogs. Right? Yeah. Uh, when I'm mixing up my food for my dogs, I deliberately go and I put grain in it. Right? My dog, my big dog, my really, really big dog that frightens away, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses from the gate, etc. You'll find that he loves grain. Um, and that's what he was made to, to, to eat in the first place. So vegetarian habits are much wider than the textbook implies when it says they evolved sharp teeth for killing things. No, they didn't. Sharp teeth are wonderful for plucking grapes off, wonderful for plucking fruit off because you've got a rake and you can put the, the stem between your teeth and pull it and it works a really brilliant system. Diane, have we got some of this stuff on our own website? Yes, we have actually. Um, if you go to the fact file, we've got quite a few things on unlikely vegetarians. Uh, so uh, uh, look for diet, vegetarian diet, and you'll get quite a few examples. Good stuff. All right, we might have just about enough time for one or two more quick questions. I don't know how far yep. we're through them, Sam, but what, have, what else have we got? Yeah, yeah, we've got, uh, got a few questions here. Um, I think these are fairly um, simple questions to ask. We'll keep the answers quite brief. George That's comes fine. in and asks this question. Can we simulate lava flows volcano in, the, in a flume experiment? One skeptic claims the flumes are just toys. They have to deny real science. One skeptic claim that is just what? The flumes One skeptic are just toys. Yeah, they're just toys. Oh, they're just toys. Uh, yes, we certainly have had that objection. But here's what we've noticed, and I've said it before, I, I don't think we need any extra thing uh, added on to this, but when, when we got the criticism the flume is just a toy, we were halfway through increasing the size of our flume experiments. And the reason we went from having one that was half a metre or 18 inches long to one that was sort of three feet, a metre long, the one that was two metres, the one that was three metres, was to see do we get the same results if we increase the size or does it change? Okay, now, having bought in a guy who was a water expert, I, I asked him something that puzzled. Diane remembers when we had the tiny little flume. We were yeah. puzzled by the fact that we 
if we increase the size, we kept getting the same sort of results. Increase the thickness, increase the length. It didn't seem to influence the type of results we got at all. And our water expert, who deals with this on an enormous scale, said that's because the results are not determined by the flume, its shape or its size. The properties you're seeing are water properties. Where the water is in a flume or out of a flume, water behaves in layers. The layers are a natural property of water. Now, that's the key. So once you, once you admit to that, you can say it has nothing to do with a, what you call my little toy. And some people say it's just John Mackay's silly little toy. Now, in reality, it's an experiment with water. And if you want to donate the money, we can, we can turn it into a 100-metre-long flume. Uh, but we'd rather use the money for something else. We are running experiments. We now have a 50-foot, uh, what is that, 15-metre-long uh, flume. We, we dug it in the ground to build a big delta on the end, and we're getting the same results in that flume. We took a creek, as you saw in our pre re recent, recent one, and you get the same results in a creek that is sort of 100 metres wide and uh, hundreds of kilometres long as a, as a creek, but it only runs when it floods. It's a gigantic plume, and you're getting the same results under sea uh, where there's no walls at all except water. So I think we can dismiss any further discussion on that. Go back and look at the program we did a couple of weeks ago on that plume. Great next stuff. One. Cool beans. Right, next question. Uh, we might be able to squeeze another one in after this. How would you feel about having Dr. Ken Colson on the show? He's from Brisbane, PhD in Earth Science, and wrote his dissertation on stromatolites slash microbolites in his YouTube channel is Creation Unfolding? The answer is no. He probably wouldn't accept the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> End of question. Fair enough. Well, we could we can try, I suppose, but oh well. Right. Uh, and the the this one was a very interesting statement, which we might be able to have a, a brief discussion about. This comes in from Shadow Raid Legends, uh, not 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 sponsored by Shadow Raid Legends. I would like to point out, um, but uh, so as they say, um, while I agree that Behemoth is a sauropod class dinosaur. Leviathan appears to be a poetic description of Satan, who is described as a serpent from um, cover in the Bible. Any thoughts? Uh, I'll throw in one for starters. And the thing is, if you're going to read Behemoth as a real animal and then swap mm -hmm. to Leviathan as a poetic description of Satan, you've committed the classic error of interpretation. You've used two different methods for similar descriptions, right? And you can't do that. If you're going to use a literal type interpretation of Behemoth, then you need, first of all, to use a literal type interpretation for Leviathan, right? If you're going to suggest there's a second level, well, feel free to do that, but you've got to then be consistent. What's the second level for Behemoth? What's the second level for Job? If Leviathan is got a poetic level, does Job have a poetic level, right? So is Job a description of the Archangel Michael, for example. You've got to be consistent all the way through uh, or you shoot yourself in the foot. Joe, anything to add to that? Um, well, if you look at the description of Leviathan in terms of what you can and can't do to him, um, 
he talks about, you know, not being able to catch him with a hook, not being able to stab him. These are all physical, earthly things that you can try. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not gonna you're not gonna make it. That's the point. Um, but none of those seem to be distinct or seem to fit with the interpretation that it's a, a spiritual being. There's certainly a case to be made that it's a earthly creature which is being used to represent a spiritual force. Um, you'll find that references to dragons throughout scripture. Um, if you look through history, dragons were real creatures. We call them dinosaurs today. Um, but it's also being used to represent a spiritual force in other parts of scripture, i.e. Satan. So there is a case, I think, to be made for Leviathan being an earthly creature that represents that also represents rather um, a spiritual force like like Satan, but um, I'm from taking from context from all the rest. You can see he goes from this section of scriptures when God is talking to Job, and he goes through real creature after real creature after real creature, making the point that God is the <laughs> the greatest basically he is the ultimate creator um and it's using all things that job uh, has been able to experience been able to see been able to understand you know how did you do this how did you do that can you even do this can you understand that who was the one who did this it's really god trying to get job to see um, the importance of him as creator. So it certainly doesn't make sense that you suddenly have this purely spiritual thing thrown into place there. The only way I think you could say um, Satan is if you have this earthly creature that also is representing a spiritual force, but I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced of that theory, but it is certainly a theory out there. Any comment? Cool. Let me just throw in one last thing then. Don't forget... <laughs> the field trip for Joe and that on the beach. You've mm -hmm. still got time to join it. It'll be a great day. Don't forget, we've got a, a, a how to deal with the woke world coming up in Australia in a couple of weeks. Details from our office out here. Don't forget, you can get fossils from both Joe and from me and our new books coming out, particularly for kids as Christmas uh, comes up and the ones that are already there. Uh, I think that's about it. I think so. Yes, I think, I think that about does it. It's just great. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and watching. We had a great audience tonight, lots of interaction. Um, we've got many, many things that obviously we could have gone on and discussed even further with many of the questions, but keep the questions coming. I think that next week we will do a Q&A session. We haven't done one of those in a while, and I think we're all available. And uh, Diane will actually be here in person with us um, back in Oswestry, so uh, we're looking forward to that. And... Uh, yeah, I think it's about time we do a Q&A session before moving on. So um, great stuff. Anyway, thank you all. God bless. Goodbye. And we will see you next time. <laughs>